Welcome to another episode of the Inside Japan podcast, which is sponsored by Jobs in Japan, the best place on the internet to get your next job in Japan. I'm talking with my friend Martin Bragalone, who is without a doubt one of the best Japanese speakers I've ever met in Japan, including some Japanese people. And I've actually heard stories of your work at university being better than some of the Japanese students' work. In Japanese. So, how did you get to being that stage where you're speaking Japanese at such a level that friends of mine have told me, wow, he's like the most natural sounding Japanese speaker I've ever met who's not from Japan? Well, thank you very much for yeah, that it's... amazing introduction. <laughs> I don't necessarily know that I'm all that special. I just, I do believe I had an unfair advantage in that、um, as an Anglo. You know, English speaker.、Right. I think my unfair advantage was studying Spanish、uh, earlier than most.、Mm -hmm. So, Spanish,、um, this is just theory, but you know, think about it, has the same vowels as Japanese and very,、um, you know, a, e, u, a, o. Same、uh. vowels, Italian, Spanish. So, and I'm not even a perfect Spanish speaker,、uh, but I, I really focused on intonation and, and pronunciation、uh, with Spanish. So, Then, when I did come to wanting to learn Japanese,、uh, I was just before university. I was doing a little bit of you know, self study, autodidactic study. And I just really had a, a strong desire to communicate with Japanese、mm. people. But I, I think the Spanish really helps.、Um, English, not to be too theoretical or whatever, but、uh, you know, you're British, I'm American. English, we actually have almost too many vowels. Right, there's a lot more. I think, I can't remember where I saw there was like a list of how many sounds there are in different languages. And Japanese has one of the fewest. There's very few sounds, which is, it totally explains why a lot of Japanese people really struggle with speaking English with a, a solid intonation. Because a lot of those sounds just don't exist in Japanese.、Right. And so they're trying to learn how to say things like th and v and f. Right. From scratch, they can't, it's not in their language, so that it's like those mouth shapes, like those muscles develop as you're growing up.、Right. The more you use those terms and the, the different sounds. So, if you haven't grown up making those sounds, it's like you have to train a whole different muscle group in your mouth. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because I think I also really liked doing impressions as a kid.、Mm. And so, I've really loved always like doing impressions. And so, when I came to Japan, like my, my vocabulary is not quite there. But I think I have a really good intonation in Japanese. And people often tell me that my intonation is really great, even though I know that my,、uh, you know, my actual vocabulary lexicon is pretty low. But when I do say stuff, people are like, oh, wow, like, your Japanese is really great. And not just in a sort of like, oh, Nihongo Jozu, but it's like, oh, wow, okay, we can just speak in Japanese. I'm like, oh, no, 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 we, we, we can speak about some things.、Yeah. But as soon as we get like, more advanced, I'm like, okay, I don't know enough words. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, and the speaking as well, I think it's always important to, I guess, gamify it and just enjoy the challenge.、Um, to be totally honest, when I was younger, I mean, I was, I'm not too old now, but when I was in my early 20s learning Japanese, I kind of would BS my way through a lot of conversations. So the Japanese person or other languages I would speak, I'd, I'd basically, this was my strategy. They would be speaking with me, and I knew enough to be dangerous and get them thinking I understood everything.、Mm -hmm. And I could kind of get them to believe that I understood large swaths of the conversation and I didn't.、Mm. Um, but I would just keep going because I just believed that if I just keep engaging, I'm going to learn it eventually or I'll go read about it. And, you know, eventually you, did, you would get called out and people would be like, hey, I don't think you understood that.、Mm -hmm. But over time, 
it sort of did work. And, you know, reading really helped. I read a lot. And again, Japanese is really helpful that, um, yeah, I mean, there's not like, it's not like Chinese or something. There's all these tones. Uh, you, you could call it a semi-tonal language. Japanese, Korean, they fall into that mm -hmm. category. But for the most part, you don't have to worry about it. You just, if you get the vowels right, a, e, u, e, o. Yeah, instead of a, e, i, o, u. And instead of English, a, e, like English, we, we tend to elongate. Oh, okay. And that is actually... It's a different, it's a different thing in Japanese, right? That's dame in Japanese. Yeah. Whereas an American or an, a British might say, dame. Right yeah. there, you're off. Right there, you're off. Right, right. So, again, like, Spanish helped me a lot because in Spanish, Italian, short and long vowels are differentiated. In English, we don't think about that. Mm. So, you come in with that. Once you've got that solid, then you read to improve your vocabulary. It's going to take a number of years, but if you just time on target, it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the the important part, which is the thing that you know that I think a lot of other people don't know, which is a lot of the theory stuff. So I do want to deep dive a little bit into some of that theory because a lot of people can talk about their language learning journeys and like, oh yeah, I studied, you know, Genki 1 and 2 or whatever. But yeah. I think you understand it from a sort of like totalizing, this is how language learning works because you speak not only English and Spanish and then Chinese and Japanese, but you also, you know, you were in Vietnam for however long, like two years, three Number years? of years, yeah. And then you, you can speak Vietnamese and you were helping like people out with like rental contracts and stuff in Vietnam. Vietnamese and it's just like okay so that's five languages and we're the same age and I'm still like I'm still I'm pretty good at Japanese and I can do things by myself and and uh, deal with everything daily life here but holy crap like five languages and and you're amazing at all of them you know, getting to that level a lot of that has got to come down to those theories that you have about language they must be working in some way maybe they do you know theories are really funny um, at the end of the day just doing just, you're right. just doing it, right? So, so you know, I've read a lot of different things, and I'll be like, yeah, you know, Stephen Krashen or this guy or um, Paul Nation from New Zealand, and they all have different theories, and they're kind of well-known in the linguistic community mm -hmm. um, and controversial. But you know what? At the end of the day, I don't know. At the end of the day, Nike's slogan, just do it, is really all that works. <laughs> <laughs> because I've met people that are, I would say, just as even more talented than me and better. And, and maybe they speak 10, 20 languages and they're very competent. Um, and they have different theories. Mm. So you know what? But at the end of the day, they do it, right? We do it. Right. So it's the kind of thing like, you know, like what's the secret to being able to run you know, uh, five miles. Well, you just got to run five yeah, miles. Yeah, right. And that's really, that's really all it is. And so a lot of people have this, I think what holds people back in any endeavor is I need X before I can do this. Like right. I need to, I can't, I can't go to the office by myself and, and negotiate this, that, and the other, because let's say the government office, my Japanese isn't good enough. Right. I need to wait until next year. Right, right. And they don't actually learn things. And I think that's yeah. what's happened uh, to me in, in some sense in, in Japanese, is that there were situations that just cropped up. And I'm just like, I need to learn the Japanese for this. Um, the, I think the difference with me, though, is that I've kind of looked at it as a necessity. Um, I think I figured out a few years into being in Japan that um, what I really wanted to work on were more things like I wanted to learn about education and I wanted to learn about marketing and I wanted to learn about uh, you know graphic design and video and stuff like that. So that's what I really focused on and I thought that was a better use of my time than improving my Japanese. But for people who really want to improve their Japanese, like what are some of these theories that can help them 
uh, maybe get over that mindset of like, I need to learn this first? Like, what are some of the ideas that you've had that have helped you kind of get past those boundaries? Yeah, um, uh, I would say again, um, this word that is kind of, you know, trendy right now, mindset. I read mm-hmm. a book uh, last year called uh, by Carol Dwick mm-hmm. called um, Mindset. Mm-hmm. And it's just this idea of this abundance mindset of just, you know, one mindset says, oh, I'm limited. Uh, I need this before I can do that. Mm-hmm. And the other mindset says, you know what? Everything's a skill and any skill can be learnable. So if you see, you know, if you meet a, a fluent Russian speaker, let's say a native speaker who's 20 years old. Well, of course, they've got 20 years of, of experience. You know, instead of being focused on the identity, oh, they are Russian, thus they speak Russian. Or that person is Japanese, which is what I hear a lot. Like, as I'm out and about in Japan in particular, um, from Japanese people, I hear, oh, you are this person, thus you can do this. You are American, thus you speak English. Or, wow, you speak Japanese. You're not Japanese. How can you do this? Okay. Well, the assumption is, is that identity is somehow tied to the skill. There's an association, but it's not the same. It's interesting how closely identity does tie with a language, though. In some senses, like, I wouldn't say that that's something that I would use to explain why I can't speak Japanese as well as you can. Um, But at the same time, especially when it comes to something like Japanese, I feel like that has been something that has hampered my efforts to improve my Japanese, where it's like you go into a situation where uh, someone will be like oh you you can't you obviously can't speak japanese because you're not one of us and that kind of makes me feel a little bit like um i i want people to recognize the amount of time that i've put into Mm. learning japanese but it's kind of difficult because for them it's like okay they see someone who doesn't look japanese and they assume okay you must be a foreigner you must speak english and um and so uh, I'm not sure if that demotivates me, but it definitely makes me feel like, okay, so I'd like to be, rec- like, it's kind of, it's become an yeah. identity, right? It's like, I yeah. am a Japanese speaker, and the the amount of work that I've put into this, I want that I that part of my identity to be recognized. recognized. Yeah, yes, you know, I, I have that experience every day. Mm. Um, uh, like, I was just at the government office today, and it was really funny, I was at, because um, I'm moving into a new uh, area in Tokyo, and I came in, and I saw the foreigner office there's like a foreigner support like office. I asked them in Japanese, hey, I just want to move my residence. Where do I go? They sent somebody out to kind of help me because they assumed, oh, he can speak, but he can't read. And then they're mm-hmm. seeing me re- reading and writing, you know, the forms. Right. And so, you know, for them, it was amazing. For me, it's it's typical. Um, it's But used to be that I felt a need to prove to right. everyone which actually doesn't come that's not actually the you know carol dwick would say that that's actually not abundance mindset but um it ended up working out for me like i wanted to prove to everybody that thought i'm american so i can't speak japanese or i was in china same thing or vietnam every, everywhere i went you know i wanted to prove to them mm. i wanted to prove i didn't care what other foreigners thought and i think that's also something that foreigners get too obsessed with Another foreigner speaks a little better than me, or I'm better than the other foreigner, so I'm okay. Mm. I, I said, no, my competition is the locals, if that makes any sense. So I need to be better than people my age who are natives. I wow. need to be more formal than them. I need to, um, I didn't realize I thought this way until reflection. Now I don't necessarily care as much because I realize, you know what, there's billions of people in the world and everybody's too busy with their own selves right. to care <laughs> about what you're doing. But at the time, that actually became a motivation for me mm-hmm. to prove, no, I can read that. I can read it better than you. You th- Oh, and, and when young people, especially in college or whatever, 
You know, oh, I bet you can't read and write kanji. No, I can write kanji with my hand better than you can type it. Yeah. I wanted to prove it to them, and that would that was my motivation. I'd go to the. I used to when I was studying abroad here. One of my favorite things to do before I could read well, I used to go to the library, and there were all these newspapers, and you could just like kind of browse the newspapers. I would just read the titles, mm-hmm. and I would get my translator out, and I wanted to read everything. Mm. And I would just browse, 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 and eventually I started reading the articles, and that would take hours. It was it was, it was painful for some people, but I just was like I had to do this. Mm. And then now, you know, I still there's still a lot of work I have to do with reading and writing. I have the JLPT, the Nihongo Nōrikugen Level One. I got that in 2015, but you know, there's always more. Like there's the Kanji Kente, which is the test that Japanese take. Right. For example, I haven't taken that. And I've met foreigners, by the way. I'm not the best. Um, I don't want. I want to declare that right away. <laughs> I went to a translation uh, conference one time, and I also think that was 2015. And so there I was. I got the JLPT level one, and there I'm meeting these foreigners from, you know, Canada, UK, all these different places. And some of them have the Kanji Kente level two, which is something that a lot of Japanese natives can't get until college, if if that. Mm. And that's you have to write the Kanji. In the JLPT, there's no writing. And there's yeah. no speaking, you know, so it's, it's almost, um, it's a kind yeah. of a weird thing where the incentive doesn't necessarily line up with actually functional Japanese, because I notice this a lot that people, they work on getting the JLPT N2 or N1, and they think that means that they're great at Japanese. And I've met some people who have the N2 or N1 and, um, their confidence in speaking isn't even maybe as high as mine, um, where they maybe they're very good at writing and if they if it's written down they can do it and i think that might just be an artifact of how people generally learn languages in japan where it's like they've learned japanese kind of like the japanese way mm. which is maybe more focused on passive uh, mm. ways of understanding like listening and uh, reading as opposed to active like speaking and writing and so they can't write in Japanese and I think a lot of Japanese now struggle to write kanji they sometimes have to look it up on their phone and go like oh, I totally, totally forgot this simple kanji that I see all the time just because they they aren't really writing anymore they're typing on their phone so um, yeah so what are some of the really important habits that people have that you've seen, especially with other foreigners who not only speak at like the N1, you yeah. know, and understand the N1 level, but who actually sound natural in Japanese. Because I think uh-huh. that's the thing that a lot of people want to do. And uh, that's something that I think a lot of people really struggle with. Yeah, you do find a lot of foreigners even. I've met quite a few that, and again, I'm not perfect. I, I make mistakes all the time. And, and sometimes I fall back into my Americanisms mm-hmm. um, all the time. So again, I'm not claiming to be perfect, but... Um, as for habits, again, so uh, pronunciation, intonation is a muscle that it's a skill. And a lot of people focus on something very important for communication, vocabulary. Mm-hmm. But that does not necessarily mean, so I've met people that are lawyers, you know, or have very high vocabulary in, in um, let's say, two languages like English and Japanese. But, you know, their intonation, their pronunciation is, is not at all impressive. It's, mm. you know exactly where they're from. Like, I know you're from this country based on the way you right. talk. Um, and, and they can have a very high vocabulary, grammar, all that. They just probably haven't put a lot of effort into actual pronunciation. So how would you actually go about doing that? It's worthwhile. It's one of those things that I find um, I've gotten into Asian languages. After Japanese, I got more and more into other Asian languages, like Vietnamese, Thai, and different languages. And I, I may not be good at them, but I'm interested 
And one thing I've cultivated that I would highly advise learning any language or any skill is to have a lack of trust of your own innate ability. And that sounds actually counterintuitive, mm -hmm. but for example, Vietnamese or uh, I learned this with Mandarin. Um, I was learning Mandarin from books. And so I got in my head what the tones and the sounds like were like, mm -hmm. but Chinese people couldn't understand me. And I realized, <laughs> yeah, that sucks. You know, I was like, wow, I'm speaking, but nobody can understand me. Mm -hmm. And I, so I had to start from scratch and I had to just listen and I would take these expressions and sentences and listening to a native speaker over and over again. Not, and I learned that um, the way it works in Chinese, and actually I learned this, it really works this way in every language, is that every language is tonal. We just don't know it. We go up, we go down. And if you try to focus on learning the tones of one word, uh, what ends up happening is that word gets next to other words. Mm. Everything changes. So instead, what I do now is I like to have whole sentences, ideally whole paragraphs. That gives me the context. Mm. Um, I don't care about the grammar so much. I just want the whole paragraph there. I follow it with my pen, and I want to hear a native speaker reading it. Mm -hmm. And I don't want them to speak slowly. I want them to speak the way they speak. Right. And then I just listen to it like a million times. And eventually I start, I'm following with my pen. And then eventually I start shadowing them. And I try to, I try to follow them. And then I try to get literally, I try to go up when they go up and down when they go down. Right. If you do that for a number of months or years, I mean, it, it, it just doesn't have to be a long time. It could be five minutes a day, you know. You do that, you're gonna be you're gonna be pretty solid. Mm. I, I think you told me the word for this a while ago, which was the it's called prosody, right? It's like the sing-songy sound of the language, mm. and a lot of people don't uh, pay attention to that when they're learning a language, especially something like Japanese, because Japanese especially is kind of a um, uh, a phonetic language. So you can pick up a word and you can read something. You know, you can just like konnichiwa. It's like it's always like ko. It's not ko or something like that. It's not ni or nai, maybe, like depending on, in English, where the way you would read something, you kind of read something wrong. If you if you can read, then you can kind of say the words and then people will go into a book and they'll be like, okay, I can say all of these words because it's a phonetic language. But actually that doesn't pick up how people actually understand you when you speak the language, um, especially in, in short sentences. And I think a lot of foreigners do start off with um, short sentences when they're speaking in Japanese because it's kind of difficult to string those kind of things together. If they read a whole sentence in one, and I think you recommended this book to me. I'm not sure if I still, I'm not sure if I still have it. I think I lent it to a friend, but it's called Read Real Japanese. Oh, and it came yes. along with a, um, a CD that also had someone reading the book in the way that a Japanese person would read it. And so I would follow along while reading um, and, and the reading kind of a lot of it had, um, on the other side of the page, would have some information in, uh, English and Japanese explaining the context of the sentence and the paragraph, as opposed to just like, this word means this, mm -hmm. but in different situations, it might feel or, or look in a different way. So yeah, I really, I also learned about that. And I taught that to my students where I said, don't just pick these word lists and don't as an, like when I was an English teacher, which I recently quit doing, but, um, yeah, don't just pick English words and go, okay, what does that mean in Japanese? Okay. That means this, because then you end up with a whole bunch of artifacts from translating to the other language. What you do is you pick up a sentence and go like this whole sentence mm. in this context means this, mm -hmm. and then you can really use it. You can actually, 
uh, that that becomes more functional part of your language. And my students really appreciated that. I think a lot of them actually told me that that was a really big thing for them. They would listen to uh, like an episode of a TV show and they would just shadow the person and write down the whole sentence and they'd pick it up and be like, this is like a natural situation to use this in. So it, it made a lot more sense to them as opposed to just trying to fit together words they just learned. Yeah. And you know, and there's a lot of things in there that you just mentioned that are great tips. Um, uh, well, there's a word that would help if you're looking for um, graded readers. And right. thankfully in Japanese, um, if you're studying a language, Japanese, Mandarin, Chinese, French, German, popular languages, popular to study around the world, Russian, Spanish, English, it's going to be very easy for you to find what are called graded readers. These are amazing because they're based usually on vocabulary level. Not so much on grammar, but gr grammar is actually not that mysterious. If you have a certain vocabulary level, you probably only know certain grammar. It's not that mysterious. So there's all these now stories. So let's say like I've been learning Russian, for example, it's um, Tolstoy. I'd love to read Tolstoy, but I'll never be able to read it because it's like, it'll take me 10 years to get to the point where I could read him. And I'll probably be too bored anyways, because it's like, you know, way too high level. But I can find a graded reader that simplifies some of Dostoevsky and you know Tolstoy's writings and the same thing with Japanese mm -hmm. there's so many for Japanese now if you just look on Amazon in your country if you're in Europe the United States or if you're in Japan graded reader whatever you're gonna find so many mm -hmm. and I, you can now start with that so you can go from the Japan Times series Genki 1 Genki 2 um, and then I, uh, there's no Genki 3 it's integrated approach to intermediate Japanese there's a big vocabulary gap yeah. But it's okay. You can still do it. Shogunai, you know what I'm saying? There's a vocabulary gap. Genki 1 and 2 kind of overlap very nicely. And then there's a, there's a, there's a step. Right. You have to kind of jump up to there. It is a little hard. Once you're in that book, the integrated, what do you call it again? Uh, it's an integrated approach to intermediate Japanese, which is a terrible, terrible title. Terrible title, but great book. I actually yeah. used it in university. I lent it to a friend recently and she's going through it with uh, with her Japanese teacher and they're both just like, this is fantastic. This is exactly a, what she needed it's to a great fill in book. a lot of the gaps, like especially if you have gaps in the middle of your Japanese, like you've you learned a lot of stuff, especially from being in Japan and learning yes. Japanese from locals, then there'll be a lot of gaps in your knowledge in areas that you don't necessarily speak about frequently. So um, it really helps to fill those gaps. Exactly. And what I did to fill the gap was I actually, um, so I finished Genki 1 and 2, and then on my own, I, I didn't ever use Mina no Nihongo. I know that's really popular. So Mina no Nihongo, you have Mina no Nihongo. Right. Um, that's also a good equivalent. You know, you can just go through the same equivalent it's going to take you through what's called Shokyu Nihongo, so elementary Japanese. Okay, but there's a huge gap between Shokyu Nihongo and Chukyu Nihongo, intermediate Japanese. How do you get there? Other textbooks, for example, um, I used one called Yokoso. Hmm. Great series, and actually a lot of Japanese teachers won't use it in the classroom because Yokoso is very vocabulary heavy and kanji heavy. Great for what we call autodidactic study, self-study. So if you want to do self-study and get a tutor, like on italki.com, for example, I would use a book like Yokoso. So you've gotten through Genki 1 and 2 in a group. Now you do Yokoso 1, maybe 2, and that'll solidify. Now you're ready for the integrated intermediate Japanese Japan Times. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I'd say, now let's go and start working with some graded readers. This doesn't have to take a long time. This can take literally what I'm talking right here. This could be a year and a half, two years if you're really dedicated. Mm -hmm. If you are 
having a social life, a normal person. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe it takes you three years to get through all these. But from that point, you're going to use graded readers. And then once you feel your Japanese, you want to make sure that, you know, you feel it's functional for your needs, your social right. life, your needs. Now, let's start looking at JLPT. Um, I didn't start studying JLPT until I was around at level N2, yeah. right? Um, I just, and in fact, a lot of Chinese that I was studying with, I, I had a lot of Chinese people that I was with, they told me, no, we just go straight for N1. But I'm not from a kanji country. <laughs> I felt like I needed N2 just to solidify. Um, right. So you don't have to start at N5 or 4 if you are about at the level. So I just studied Mm -hmm. And I just would do it on the train, you know, back and forth, go through my vocabulary, my kanji. Um, and I believe that the hand, the pen, is your best friend. I yeah, I hand think, right out. I think that was really helpful for me as well when I was learning kanji. Like, I was um, by far one of the best people at kanji in my class. And I don't think it was because I studied super, super hard, because I, I, I've never really been a great student. Um, I What I did was I would write the words, and then I'd write out a few different sentences using that word. So I would, you know, I'm just thinking of like one random one, like oshiru, uh, which is like to teach. You know, um, I would say, I would like write out a sentence and say like, you know, ima Tokyo de ego o oshietemasu, or something. And then uh, I would just think of a few other examples and then write them down. And that was really enough for me to get the kanji right, like, in my memory, so that not only would I recognize it when I saw it, but then I could write it when we would be in the class or something together. Which, you know, a lot of my friends are like, how do you get so good at the kanji so quickly? Because we were doing 20 or 30 kanji a week. Yes. And, um, which is, for some people, quite a lot. And they're just like, I can't remember it. And I'm just like, well, I'm just using it. And then every time I see it, I'm like, oh, that's one of the ones that I know. So I, I think that's... That's helpful, but then when it gets to sort of like an N one level where there's so many to know, and it might just take a long time. I think I remember you saying that um, a lot of that was easy for you because you read so much outside and around the the content. It wasn't just like I'm studying a list of two thousand kanji to learn for the N one. It's like you were just reading them every day in books that you were reading, and so that was how you were able to actually do really well in the test because you're like, okay, this is just a word that I know. Yeah. And you know, to be honest, um, a lot of people crit critique this style of reading. I'll, I'll call it the Tai Lopez style okay. where <laughs> you read for, you don't read the entire book. So people critique Tai Lopez for this. He doesn't actually read the entire books. I don't either. A lot of times, literally the reading was just me going to a bookstore, probably a lot longer than I should have been there for the <laughs> bookstore owners. Um, I was just like, I would go around and I'd read titles and pick up things and I'd have my notebook and my Denshi Jisho at the time, um, you know, which was the, the electronic dictionary, didn't right. have the smartphone. And I'd be like, oh, I want to know what this says. And, and I can't tell you how many times it's the fight with yourself, just like exercising. I'm like, oh, I want to go home. But then I'm like, I'm so annoyed that I can't read that. Mm. Especially when I've read it before. That happens a lot with kanji. Mm. Um, and you also mentioned writing. Okay, writing is so powerful. This is just my theory, and I could be wrong. I came to believe that there is an inver there's some kind of inverse relationship with the amount of kanji you can write and read. So, let's say if you can write 100 kanji, you can probably read comfortably, at least passively, 300. Right. Something like that. So, um, if you can write... By your hand in the right context and you forget them sometimes that's okay just keep writing if you can write like 900 a thousand kanji 
you can probably read the 2000. Right. And, you know, Joyo Kanji, which is the what the elementary stu- school students learn, which are the most commonly used kanji and readings. Um, it's actually not even 2000. It's like 1,900 something. And it includes name readings. Um, names are really helpful. Don't disregard them. You're walking around a residence, right? You're walking around a, um, a neighborhood. You're going to see a lot of names on houses. Take out your Denshi Jisho and read it. Yeah, and you'll be, and then you start getting these names in, and then you can kind of guess sometimes, like what the, because uh, I see a lot of kanji that I'll be like, I've seen those two, but not in this combination yes. before. I'm like, does that say like this? And then a lot of the time I'll get it right, just because I've seen those kanji in so many different situations that I'm just like, okay, is this this and this? And it's like, no, no, it's this and this. But uh, like, you got the first one right, and the second one is like this reading. And and I think a lot of that like onyomi kunyomi yeah. kind of thing is really um, it's. It can be confusing at first, but then it's just a matter of exposure. The more you've seen it, the more likely you are to just go, oh, okay, I actually know what this says, even though, like, I can maybe say it, mm-hmm. but I don't know what it means necessarily. And and sometimes that's the case. Yeah, you know what's really weird about Japanese, too, is is you can have, let's say, an onyomi, um, so Chinese reading um, of, of two characters. Based on the context, it can change, but also, like, the industry. So um, I remember one time I was in I was working in real estate for a while, many years back, and there was this kanji combination, and I told this guy, this other foreigner, and I was like, oh, this is how it's read. And he's like, no, no, in my industry, it's read this way, and it actually means a different thing. So, um, and what's also interesting about the kunyomi, you look at kanji that you will probably learn from day one or two in Japanese, like nama, mm-hmm. you know, se, gakuse, gakuse no se, that kanji has so many readings it's mm. ridiculous and <laughs> like it's got the joyo kanji okay which is the recognized kanji and the joyo kanji are great to know because newspapers tend to stick to joyo kanji mm-hmm. um whereas magazines this is the same in france U- united kingdom u.s generally newspapers are meant to be read by someone who has less than a high school education so they have actual linguistic limitations okay and whereas an, uh, a magazine does not Okay, and I think that's maybe just um, specialist knowledge about particular industries. Like if you're reading, so for example, for me, I learned a lot of different Japanese words about coffee because I'm really into coffee. I've got my coffee channel on YouTube and I thought I should know some of these words. So for example, things like baisen toka, um, like baisen is like to roast. And then uh, like namamame, which is mm. like the green unroasted coffee beans. So when I'm looking for, you know, uh, different, you know, or mame no mama de, like the without grinding up so like i go to a place and they'd be like do you, you know um do you want us to grind this up for you and i'm like ah mummy the mama there uh, mm. and then they're like oh, okay so it means like it, as the whole bean instead of mm-hmm. uh pre-ground so things like that i can learn because i'm really interested in coffee and i'm like ah i want to go to this roastery and i want to find out this extra information and so i go to like a nice roastery and i can talk with them about coffee and there's a nice guy actually around the corner from where i live who um he's like this super happy really fun guy who just like talks a lot every time i go in there he'll like tell me everything that he knows about the coffee and most of it like because he speaks so fast i can't understand everything he says but we can have an interesting conversation about coffee because that's what i want to know about right so i think learning those yeah learn and that's the thing like it wasn't hard for me to learn those because i freaking love coffee and i like talking about it so for me it was just like oh what are the words for this what are the words for this and if i had to do that with you know something that i don't care about like you know the a lot of people try and learn 
Japanese from anime, which I think is a big mistake. And uh, and I you know I don't I don't care about any of the things that they talk about in those things. I don't care about the language. I'm not really that interested. Um, I don't really watch anime. So um, you know, but something like coffee, it's super easy for me to learn because that's what you're into. Yeah. yeah. And you know, a lot of those things you just said, like if you said namamame. I would just think of the brown bean because I have very because <laughs> I just don't have that much knowledge about coffee right. and I like drinking coffee, but I don't really care much else beyond that. And right, so right. when you make me good coffee, I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna drink it. I'm probably you know like, yeah, if you know I'm sitting on a train, nowhere to go, and somebody hands me a coffee book, I might read it. You know, yeah. and that's how life is. We we all get our own this sort of you know, gyokai no chishiki or you know this industrial knowledge that we right. get. So you've got it. You know, yeah. that'll help. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been great. And a lot of really good information, especially like specialist knowledge, which I think a lot of people, they they have some kind of like understanding of how people learn languages. But a lot of it comes from like different places. They have a lot of um, kind of, uh, there's a lot of bad advice out there for people that's just like, you know, especially when I'm talking to Japanese teachers, a lot of them will just be like, you just have to memorize everything. And it's like, that sounds like a really torturous way of learning Japanese. So, uh, you know, I like your idea of just like picking things that you want to learn about and learning them, finding like specialist, uh, like actual language that you want to learn. And then just like, getting obsessed with it a little bit. Like, I think it's good to get a little bit obsessed with things because I think that lets you to just power through and learn something when if you weren't obsessed, you'd just be like, okay, I can't read this newspaper, I can't read this title, but that's fine, whatever. Like, be, be nice to yourself or whatever. And then you end up just not being very good at Japanese. So yeah, I think it's a really uh, good knowledge. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Charlie. Awesome.